What's up everyone, welcome to part one of episode seven on the Naked With podcast. In this episode, we meet with fellow Tongan Luciano Afiaki, who is co-owner of Crunch Fitness, which currently has 18 gyms around Australia, with approximately 75,000 members. As we hear throughout this episode, his journey into the industry involved working with the likes of UFC boss Dana White, Madonna, and even Jackie Chan. Funnily enough, Luciano explains, may have helped him get his dad's approval over the line to enter the fitness industry. In part one, we dive into his upbringing in Tonga and New Zealand. We discuss the importance that culture played in his identity, not meeting his father until he was seven years old, ideas of masculinity, and the role of education in providing him with opportunities. Part two is more focused on how Luciano ended up in Hong Kong, where he really learned his trade about running business, finding mentors, and sharing his knowledge about how he got to where he is today in the fitness industry. Stay tuned for this episode. Without further ado, let's get into it. What's up guys, welcome to another episode of the Naked With Podcast, where we dive into the journeys of our guests exploring their passions and purpose in life. And our hope is that we can either educate, inspire, or even just entertain our listeners in that space. Joining me today, as always, co-host Sam White. How's it going, mate? What's up, mates? No, it's going well. Everything's going well. It's another week of lockdown, trying to entertain the kids, but... Um... Look, excited to talk to our uh, next guest. You know, I've played against his family a lot, played with his family a lot on the rugby field. Pedigree of talent, uh, all blacks, wallabies in there, Tongan internationals. So, yeah, very excited to talk to uh, this fella because um, he's got a bit of a different journey, more in the business background and, and gym ownership. So, yeah, pumped for this one. Well, we're very happy to get another fellow Tongan on our podcast. He comes from, as you mentioned, Waxi, a very sporty family, and we'll dive into that. But he's a husband, he's a father of three, spent a lot of time in Hong Kong playing rugby and also doing a bit of business. He's a Linking Hearts ambassador, which is a support service for domestic violence and homelessness with women. But as I mentioned, has extensive business experience as well in the fitness industry. He was one of the first actually the first to bring UFC gym over to Australia and open the gym up in Sydney. There's also a connection there with Madonna where he was working with Hard Candy Fitness and currently he's co-owner of Crunch Fitness, 18 gyms all around Australia and has 75,000 members Australia-wide. So we're very excited to to learn and, and hear the journey of this man. So very happy to introduce Luciano Afiaki. How are you going? Hello, yeah, very good, and uh, absolute uh, honour to be on the on the podcast. And first of all, you know, congratulations to yourself, Sam. You know, for what you guys are doing. I think we talked about it earlier. This is not. Uh, I know it's not my comfort zone, so I could imagine you know two other male Tongans is not the comfort zone. So congratulations for you guys getting out there and and doing this. But uh, very happy to join you guys. Appreciate that, brother. Yeah, much appreciated. Luciano, just to start off with, as we do with all our guests, mate, just help us understand who is Luciano Afiaki and tell us a little bit about your journey. Oh, wow. Um, who is? I think, you know, you have got to go back to your childhood to kind of figure out who you are. I was born in Tonga, obviously Tongan parents. I say that because a lot of people think I'm a bit Asian, so they sometimes ask if I'm Chinese or Japanese. My... Uh, my dad is from Malfunga on the main island. And then I'd say mum was uh, along along. But I grew up 
uh, moving around my, you know, I didn't know my dad till I was seven years old because uh, he was over overseas trying to save money to get his family over. Uh, firstly, Pango Pango in American Samoa and in Wellington, New Zealand. So, you know, he was a, a famous overstayer trying to get over there and, uh, and, and, and make some money to get his family over. So, but, you know, going back to Tonga, a lot of my memories were on a little island called Nomuka, which is in Haapai, which you can only get to by ship. I think it's seven square kilometers with a population of, I think, 500 people. So it tells you how small it is. And, and it's famous because um, Captain Cook and William Bly and, and a whole lot of discoverers back in the day would stop off for fresh water because they had a massive freshwater lake. You know, so growing up in, in Tonga was just, was just awesome. Uh, mainly with my mother's side of the family. So the Kaba family versus the Afeaki family. And that was, yeah, heaps of awesome memories, cheeky memories, um, being Tongan. I think that's just part of our nature. And, you know, that was uh, very formative. Uh, I'm, I think I'm, I'll have to say I'm blessed. I, I, I speak the language probably up to the you know, age of seven, but my mum chose not to speak English. So to communicate with my mum all this time, it's always Tongan. It's a little bit scratchy every now and then, but chuck me back in Tonga for a few days and, and, and it's uh, back there again. So that was cool. At the age of seven, I was taken out of Tonga and moved to Wellington, New Zealand. They call it Windy Wellington for a reason. <laughs> and uh, a lot of people ask me, why did you choose Wellington? And I said, it's called No Choice. Where your parents go, that's where you go. Awesome place. Uh, Wellington, all I remember was just the cold and the wind. At that stage, I older sister uh, and myself, and I got a younger brother that was there then, Inoke, who's probably uh, more famous as the Kaletahi uh, captain for the 2003 World Cup. He's a little bit bigger than me, um, actually a lot bigger. And then my youngest brother, Stanley, was born in Wellington uh, a couple of years after we arrived. So. That's the siblings, you know, my dad, uh, devout Catholic. So, you know, a lot of rosaries. He still has his photo getting communion from uh, John, uh, Pope John Paul when he arrived in, in uh, Wellington, I think late 80s. So that's how, you know, our big uh, Catholic dad is, uh, had his rules as every Tongan man had. And he only had a couple. Uh, first one was low, no illegitimate children, got to be married. And no tattoos. So you can see I listened to both. Um, you know, glad, glad to say, no illegitimate children. But at the age of 39, I think I asked him, I said, Dad, when can I get a tattoo? And he looked at me, 40. So I said, okay, I've got another year or so to wait. So as soon as I turned 40, I got a lot of tattooing and he was a bit surprised how much tattooing. And I surprised myself, but I think you know, having been taken out of the islands since the age of seven, you want some kind of connection back home, you know. So I think that's how I justified it with my dad, you know. And uh, dad was obviously big in, in God, uh, kept God at the center of our family, but he also was very big on education. His dream really was to get the kids overseas somewhere to be university, you know, qualified in what not sure and that was his whole purpose get over there they you know 
dad worked factories, welding, plumbing, building stuff. My mum worked in the cigarette factory pretty much all her time in, in New Zealand. So that was 20 years uh, growing up in, uh, in Wellington. And it was a little bit different to Auckland. Auckland was, you know, you could say that was the, you know, the uh, Polynesian capital of the world. Wellington was probably still a lot of Polynesians, uh, but not as many. I got a culture shock when I first went to South Auckland, you know. I was like, I couldn't believe that English wasn't the most spoken language walking around Otara. Uh, and that was awesome, you know. But Wellington, you know, we were very isolated as such. Most of my family were in Auckland, uh, South Auckland at that. But I had one, one set of cousins who you know, I looked up to, they were older, like older brothers and, you know, Kahu, uh, Sima, sorry, the eldest, who has the Afiaki title, Kahu uh, and Tavake are both lawyers, you know, and they, you know, they were high achievers academically. Uh, they pushed it in the sports as well. And that was really cool to grow up with these cousins in Wellington. Fast forward, you know, we went to an all boys Catholic school, as you do when, uh, when your dad's pro-Catholic. I was the only one in my primary that didn't go to the co-ed school so that was a that was something uh, hard to to get to and and you could imagine all the names that I got caught going to an all-boys Catholic school that was fun missed my friends but you know I'd gotten into a, a little bit of trouble at the age of uh, 12 and you know there was just nothing to do at home so it was always let's go and roam the streets and at the age of 12 I, I almost lost sight I got a kid had hit my uh, head with a broken bottle I had to get 18 stitches on my left eye. I was so close. The doctors were saying, like, you, you could have just lost their whole eye. So, you know, dad was working night shifts and he had to come home and there was ambulances and police and everything. So that was a real uh, eye opener. And from then on, dad was just like, that's it. You guys staying home. Bought a pool table for the garage, as you do, you know, and everything was just at home, table tennis and all that kind of stuff. But going to high school was... I got sat down and, you know, told these are the kind of boys I want you to hang out with. No more troublemakers. Education is important. Uh, and, and which is great because my sister was doing really well at high school. She was doing academically. So she was doing very well. So I had a role model there. But it was tough going to an all-boys Catholic school with uh, still a few Māori boys, Islanders, uh, Samoans, uh, not many Tongans, Tokelauans. Uh, there was a lot of Tokelauans at that at that school and that was tough to kind of sidestep all the you know come hang out with me bro let's do this I had to go and hang out with the real smart smart kids you know which was a blessing in disguise because it helped me academically but going into St Bernard's College in Wellington I was blown away because we had our first Pacific Island head boy at that school for me it was like whoa because when you're growing up especially in New Zealand uh, you, you just didn't fit you know, I think I was telling Sam uh, when I caught up the other day, I said, when I left at the age of seven, I actually got to New Zealand thinking that English and Tongan were the same languages. You just had to add an S on the end of all your Tongan words. <laughs> I don't know where I got that from, but I was, now I know why everyone was looking at me like I was a crazy person. And so I was seven years of age, but I was going to play school in the morning. So I was with four, five-year-olds, and then I had to go half day to my own age group so I could pick up English and then still stay with my year at school. And that was, 
yeah, that was tough. But then, you know, just growing up, you kind of pigeonholed, and I'm sure it happened in Australia, in New Zealand. Um, you just, you knew you didn't fit. And, you know, growing up, and I'm not, I'm sure I'm not the only one. There's plenty of that story where very humble beginnings, you know, you didn't have much. And you could call it financially poor because, you know, we were rich in a lot of other ways. But financially, we didn't have a lot. So, you know, growing up in, in Wellington, you know, you get to school and everyone's talking about a program on TV or a movie on TV. We didn't have a TV. <laughs> so you kind of just went, oh, yeah, it was awesome. <laughs> like, and just when they ask you questions, just, oh, you had to go, I had to go somewhere else. And then, you know, you get to your teenage years and, yeah, you know, you're talking to girls at socials and they ask for your phone number. We didn't have a phone. <laughs> so you're like, oh, yeah, no, I better take your phone number and, uh, yeah, I'll call you because, you know, and then go down to the, you know, phone box around the corner, you know. it's uh, Those are the kind of things you had to, to, to deal with. And then growing up, high school was a real eye-opener for me, especially going to an all-boys school, but going back to the head boy, his name is Pelinato Sakalia. And he's actually the CEO for the Moana Pacifica uh, that's being put together. And then I've just kept in touch with him on Facebook. And then I've told him, I said, you know, that was a, for me to see Pelinato being the head boy at the school, which is very small, only 400 students, being Pacific Islander, that was a, you know, I kind of went, hang on, if he could do it, maybe I could do this. And that kind of kicked off a lot of thinking like that. However, still, battered and bruised by, you know, oh, you know, you'll be coming and working in the factory, you'll be working with your parents, that's where you're going to be. And that was a, you know, something that you kind of battled with ongoing. And I think high school, rugby was big at our school in the year that I finished high school, our school actually won the Wellington competition. And it's funny because a lot of people actually assume that I made the first 15. No. Nah. <laughs> I was like, my brother Inoki was six foot five at the age of 15. He was a monster and he was, he's only a th three years younger than me. So I'm in the last year of high school and I'm five foot, maybe 10 if I'm lucky. <laughs> the white kids used to beat me up for my lunch. That's how bad it was. <laughs> Everyone said, how come you're so fast? I'm like, I've got to learn to sidestep and run and eat my lunch at the same time. That's, that's quite hard work, you know? And so, you know, I made the second 15 and, and, and again, that, that kind of, I'll talk to you later on, but that kind of fueled me to, to keep going because, you know, it's only high school. As the years went off, went on, I, I guess, you know, this, this, the number of students got smaller. So I got closer and closer to, uh, to the students there. And there's still a lot of great mates now. And, but you learned a lot of those ones because you, you're more similar. You, you want to be there. You know, seventh form for us, that's how old I am. I turned 50 at the beginning of the year. So uh, it, it's, it's hard to go, oh, hang on. That's what I, when I, my dad turned 40, I thought he was, he was going to go soon. I was like, holy moly. Um, <laughs> so turning 50, I'm like, okay. Going back to, to the school days, I, I learned a lot with that close group of, of boys. And at the age of 18, I, I told my dad, you know, I finished school and there was university. And uh, I told my dad, I don't need to go to university. I'm, I'm going to get me a job and I'm going to work really hard and I'm, I'm going to focus on my rugby and maybe even be a professional rugby player. He had a bit of a chuckle, had a bit of a laugh. And he told me to, you know, help him with all the work around the house. He said, yeah, okay. However, he still made a point. University, that's where you want to go. And being the eldest, eldest son, I should say, 
as you know, being Tongan, there's a lot of expectations and, you know, you just don't want to be a disappointment, number one, to your parents, but also to your family. And I guess we'll talk a lot about like, you know, a lot about later on because your family name is, is everything. And, you know, uh, I know dad, you know, the leader of the Wellington Catholic Association and, you know, always talking about education and so forth. And my older sister was already at university. So he was expecting me to go. But I said, no, I'm going to do this and I'm going to focus on rugby. And I said to him, look, you know, dad, I've done the school thing. I've got, you know, I still remember school C is, is when you're 15. And, and that's a big deal, a massive exam. And I remember getting caught in by the dean because I had chosen to do six subjects. And I was caught in, you know, normally you think, oh, I'm in trouble. What's going on? You know, caught in to see the dean. Firstly, he congratulated me on my marks because I was doing quite well. But then he kind of sat me down and he said, six subjects is a lot. And we've never had a Pacific Islander pass six subjects. And I was like, still going, and? <laughs> I, I continued with six and I passed six subjects. And uh, I did well. And that, again, another, another pigeonhole of, hey, you're Pacific Islander. What are you, what are you doing? But you know what? I, you know, still had that, the memories of Pelinato being a head boy. And, and also my sister was doing really well academically. I was like, why not? You know? And so got through a university entrance, got that all sorted. I had a little bit of a play around when I was my last year. So, I, you know, uh, an A bursary or B bursary wasn't really what I, I just wanted to get to university. So I told dad, yep, I've done the school thing. Give me a year. So I focused on rugby and it, it was awesome. You know, never made the first 15, went and played in a club with most of the St. Bernard's first 15 boys from the year before and uh, did really well, won the Wellington comp that year. And, and, and a lot of people were surprised I got picked in the Wellington under 19 grade rep team, you know, and I'm like, who's this guy? And I said, yeah, I don't know, who's this guy? <laughs> but I just remembered going, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to take a year off, give it everything, give it your all. Um, so I started, I remember, you know, getting into protein shakes and, and, uh, you know, trying to lift a few weights in the garage and doing a few more push-ups. And I remember John Kerwin used to eat a lot of bananas. So I said, I, I just used to munch on those bananas before a rugby game. Um, and he was, you know, the great all black winger at that stage. And, you know, that again was a lesson. If you really want something, just focus, just focus. And <laughs> don't just talk about it get out there and do it and you know I was fortunate enough to have a great second 15 coach at St Bernard's and uh you know still good friends with their sons uh, his sons Kevin Rumble and David Rumble from school and he you know he was a colonel in the army so you know when he spoke when he shouted from across the the field it was almost like he was right in your ear and uh he just demanded respect and he demanded the best from his players and you know we won the second 15 comp that year the first 15 won their comp that year so there was a lot of uh, rugby talent there but um you know that that was a, a big learning for me especially when you didn't believe in yourself and everybody kind of you know had a bit of a giggle which which was you know islanders and, and boys will have a good laugh because my brother was massive you know six foot five and he was you know captain in the first 15 and he was in the wellington secondary schools and they'll look at you and go what happened? <laughs> and I'll be just like, he ate all the food. I'll get home and he'll eat all, all the dinner's gone. Uh, so, you know, 
have a bit of a laugh about it. But deep down, it was like, hey, you know, what can I do? Um, luckily, I was just a winger, but I was five foot ten. So I'd, I'd grown to about six foot three and a half. I chuck in the half because my brothers are both six six. So, I, you know, it just gives you, and you know, Adam's what, six foot nine. You know, so, I, you know, height's a thing that, you know, you don't want to miss out on too much. And so from high school to turning up to preseason training at under-19s, people were like, what the hell happened to you? You know, I just grew and they were trying to chuck me in that lock. And I was like, hell no, I am not going to put my head in there. And uh, I'd been a winger all my life. So I just became a tall winger, which kind of helped out a bit. And I still had the pace, so which helped. And then Wellington uh, was great education-wise. I needed a university degree. But here's the thing: I I was working for AMP Insurance as an accounts clerk, and you know, in rugby. And there was a moment there where you know um, the general manager of AMP Insurance travelled from Australia, and it was a big thing. And he was coming to meet the office, the home office in Wellington, and everything else. And and I remember we were all lining up to to shake this general manager's hand. And there was about six of us in the accounts team. And, you know, he walked past, he walked past, shakes everyone's hand. And I put out my hand and he, and he skipped me. And I was like, he couldn't have missed me. I'm, I'm pretty tall, you know. And uh, I, I didn't get it at the time. I was like, and I do remember hearing him talk and he had this funny accent that I never heard before. You know, you grew up in Wellington and New Zealand and you know the accents, you know, the Indians and the Maoris and the Islanders. And uh, it turned out he was South African and, you know, he had just come over from South Africa and, you know, in the nineties, early nineties, uh, sorry, in the eighties, they started leaving South Africa and coming, you know, where they could Australia and New Zealand was one of those uh, destinations for them. And that was a moment for me because I just said, well, am I not good enough to get a handshake? And I remember there were, there was talk about people getting scholarships to universities and all this kind of stuff. And I had no idea. And I started probing and, and lo and behold, there were scholarships for Maori and Pacific Islanders. I had no idea. So I applied. Funnily enough, never heard a thing. <laughs> never heard a thing. I thought, oh, well, I guess they want people with better grades or other Islanders. But here's the thing. That Christmas, we have a, a family trip to Tonga. We go, awesome time. I get back to Wellington after driving <laughs> from Auckland to Wellington as a nine-hour drive. And it was a bomb of a car. I won't say anything. It was, a, it was an auntie's that wanted us to drive it back. My sister was driving. And I still remember Desert Roll Road in, in New Zealand is like this gap where there's nothing. That's where normally they have all the army kind of exercises and so forth. And we were driving. It was like, I think, close to midnight. And our petrol was on E. And E was for empty, not enough. You know what I mean? We were just like... Oh my goodness, we're driving. If we stopped, if we ran out of gas, we would have been in a lot of trouble. Long story short, we got through, got to a petrol station, get home at about four in the morning. About 5.30 in the morning, I get a phone call from an auntie saying, uh, you've got to get ready, get to Wellington Airport, get on a plane, fly to Palmerston North because you've got a final interview for this scholarship that you applied for. I'm like, what? I've had an hour sleep. <laughs> And I'm like, so I remember just getting ready, getting to, to Wellington Airport, which is a, I don't even know how I got there. I think I drove, it was probably a half an hour drive. And I remember getting on this plane and it was like, there's only a plane for four people. You know what I mean? 
and it was just Wellington is bumpy on a, a massive plane. So you could imagine this. I thought I was going to die. I was like, this is, yeah, the devil's here. And I'm, I'm, I'm I bet you we're going to, the, the plane's going to crash and, and, and I'll be on the news the next day. But anyway, it didn't happen. Got there to Palmerston North, got driven in, and it was a panel of about four. And I'll be honest, I can remember, they weren't very friendly. <laughs> and it was more a grilling, to be honest. I don't know why. Uh, but I was like, and I do remember getting through it. I'm, I've hardly had any sleep, so I'm kind of just like, but I do remember, and, and, and this one guy, he was Samoan, a large chap, so he's quite you know, intimidating and very well-spoken. But his last question to me uh, you know, that I remembered was, why should you get the scholarship? How can you be so confident? And I remember looking at him, you know, it, Maori and Pacific Islanders do not look at each other in the eye because that's a sign of, uh, I'm taking you on. That's a challenge. And I remember looking him in the eye and just saying, look, I was fortunate enough to, to grow up with two cousins that have done very well. And they're both, you know, yeah, one's a lawyer and, and he knew who they were, you know, and, and I've grown up with them being like big brothers. And, you know, the one thing that, you know, they keep driving into me is that I could do anything that I wanted in this world. You've just got to work at it. You've just got to go and put in the work and you could be anything you want to be. And, and I looked at him and I said, and I'm, you know, I'm ready to, to put it in. And I told him my story about my, you know, making the Wellington under 19 team. Lo and behold, that closed the deal. As we were walking towards the, the taxi, he kind of looked at me and said, look, we don't normally do this. We normally send out a letter in a couple of weeks, uh, but we just want to tell you that you've got the scholarship. And I was just like, holy macaroni. I just, yeah. Just before you delve into the university side of things, see, there's some key milestones in your life that you've already spoken about. And I just want to touch on one. You mentioned yep. at 12, you had that incident, you know, you got glassed with that bottle. Mm -hmm. You got into yep. a bit of trouble. And we, we just had, I guess, similar experiences with that of some of our mates and some guys from the older and younger year groups who were polys. Events like that happen, but then they just get stuck yep. in that cycle. What do you think was really key for you to get out of that pattern of getting into trouble and then mm. moving forward into something that was more positive to get you out of that? Yeah. Um, yeah. Good question. I guess, you know, I take it back to, you know, dad, making sure that, that God was a priority uh, in our family. And, you know, it's, it's not, I don't think it's a done thing in a lot of Polynesian families is communication. Mm. And, you know, from what I know now, communication is the main thing that causes a lot of disruptions and, and makes a lot of things what the, they say is dysfunctional and so you know dad was probably you know uh, had enough courage to kind of sit us down and say what needed to be said and I think that was uh, a big thing having that male figure in the family to answer your question I think number one dad had always had God at the center of our family he he had his goals you know education was important and his, his family was important. So he had the time to sit us down. And I guess that's where your, your Tongan values would come in. Respecting our elders is something that it's, you know, absolutely drilled into us. And, you know, that's one thing about the, the village mentality. You know, they say that, you know, children are raised by the village because that's, that's how we grew up. And that's one of the things that, you know, I, I like about it because there's that respect. You, you don't know better. You may think you do, but when, you, when your parents speak, we, we listen. And that's one of the things that I grew up with. And even aunties and uncles, same thing. Grandparents, 100%. 
and anyone that's older than you, you kind of have to respect. And that's the word. So yeah, that was, um, that was important, but also I guess pain, <laughs> pain is a really good teacher in all honesty. Uh, and as they say, you know, your best teacher was your last mistake. And so, you know, listening to my dad and speaking and me having gone through it. And here's the thing. It, it was really sad because the, the kid who did it was a year older than me, but he used to be our next door neighbor and we used to be mates, you know? So when it came to pressing charges, I, I, I said, no, um, the police came over a number of times and, and they, they knew he was a troubled youth. So they, you know, you don't send him to prison, but there's boys homes and they were saying, you know, he needs to go. But I just didn't feel like pressing charges was the thing to do, probably with my you know, Christian upbringing and forgiveness being a big thing. But to know what had happened to you, and if you don't, if you don't change your course, if you change, don't change your direction, this is what your life could look like. That was the kind of the, the message that I got from my dad. Um, you know, the, the messages to, to the listeners here. For me, there's there's your support network. And I've always been a big believer in that. You're only as strong as your support network. So looking at who is who is around you and just, you know, most people know what's right, what's wrong. A lot of the times that, you know, I think probably at the age that I was at, um, I was before the, the rebellion, you know, the rebel with no cause kind of age, still listening to, to my parents. But looking around, I had good friends, who, you know, were Tongan as well. And they didn't have it. How can I say this? Um, they, we got hidings, they got beaten. It just wasn't a nice thing to see. And so we saw, we grew up a lot of, uh, and saw a lot of that kind of stuff. I mean, you know, a lot of people, you know, when Once We Warriors first came out and, you know, it was a big, big thing around the world. And, you know, uh, they said, you know, have you seen that movie? And I said, it's more like a documentary because, that's what we used to see. That was just the norm. So I think that hopefully that answers your, your question. How did I yeah. pull out of that? I think a lot of communication. I think um, I'm, I was glad my dad did have that sit down with me and kind of, uh, this is where you could end up if you don't, if you don't change course. Mm -hmm. And again, being the eldest son, there's a sense of responsibility as well. Like I never got yeah. hidings, but I did see a lot. Yeah. And I was like, I, I, don't, want to, I don't want that in my life mm. so I made sure I had to try and change my behaviors a little bit but going back to your old man so the way he communicated those messages those lessons even when you said you didn't want to go to uni and he said okay do some work around the house mm. see how you go but still be able to talk to you and provide those lessons do you think if you had have gone maybe the stereotype way where Tom and dads might go down that path do you it would have changed your course on on who you are and and would you be sitting in the same spot today oh yeah totally blessed you know because as you guys know, you don't get a directions or, you know, you don't go to have training as uh, being a parent and, and so forth. So you kind of, you're doing what you've seen, you know, your parents do and, and, and other parents. So, you know, going back to, to my dad, and that's probably getting a lot of teachings from the Bible. You know, he, he, was, he was a top rugby player. He, you know, we used to watch him, you know, I think he played to the age of 46 in Wellington, you know, social grade. But I think he was in the, Tongan Ikaletahi team in 73. I think that was the year after they beat the, the Wallabies, their famous team. And so, you know, we, we knew there was this tough side. And, you know, dad and my uncles, 
like Adams, Adams dad, they, they like to talk a good story and how fast they were on the field and how tough they were. But believe it, Adams dad, uh, my uncle Bolt was, um, oh, he was a nutcase. He tackled with his head and he was just a, a barrel of a man. Uh, not the tallest, but he was there. But my dad, we just knew that he didn't have to show his, how tough he was or, or, or push his masculinity forward. It was like, he was quite a softly spoken guy, but I think every meeting would start with a prayer. And what I know about praying now is that you ask for, for wisdom, you ask for guidance. And that kind of got him into the, into the right zone, which is great because seeing what I've seen some other, you know, fathers do, and, and it was definitely something for us that we, we, uh, you know, would connect to. Don't get me wrong. It was, uh, mum was three hidings a day, you know, that, that was mum. Whereas dad was one hiding a year, but you would remember that hiding. <laughs> that was very memorable. Uh, Knox and I, because we were very similar in age, whereas, you know, Stan's about eight years younger than me. Knox was that classic, we call him Tongan Talahui, always Talahui, always getting cheeky, always getting in trouble. And I felt for him because he, you know, technically he shouldn't have been getting smart to me. He should be respecting me. And a lot of his hidings came from disrespecting his older brother. <laughs> so I, I tell him though that's why you're so tough that's why you're such a good rugby player you know so you should be thanking me he still hasn't thanked me but that's all right and it, it's a good laugh but yeah going back to your to your question and, and, and answer that was a, a real good way for me to to listen to my father and, and take his lessons and even you know he said his bit and and he'll leave it at that and and I think that's what worked with me was like He'll say his, you know, what he believes needs to be said, and then he'll leave it at that. And he'll, he, he knew, he knew that I'll be going away and thinking about it. And, and he still does it today. <laughs> Don't know any other dad, but, you know, um, when I did meet him at the age of seven, I was just glad that I had a dad, you know. <laughs> you get picked on enough as a kid in the islands. They say, oh, you know, things like your dad's never coming back. He's probably already got a family over there. He's forgotten about you. And, those kind of things, yeah, uh, yeah, you can remember. Because um, my dad was in jail, so I was actually brought up by my grandma. And yeah, said, you know, it takes a village sometimes. Wow. Um, when my grandma passed away, I actually moved in with Sam and his family. Um, wow. so that's just a good example of how Tongan families pull together oh, when yeah. needed and bring up being brought up by women, I guess, that, in a way that shapes your idea of what, what it means to be a man as well, just as much as if you're growing oh. up with, um, you know, males in your life. Absolutely. Um, Sometimes I probably preferred a hiding because it was more talking with them. <laughs> so much hiding. It was very much a conversation style intervention. Um, <laughs> it did shape what I thought it meant to be a man. I guess for yourself and, and your lessons from your dad and, and your mum, what, what mm. does it mean to be a man for you? And, and did you ever have any challenges there with your identity in terms of being a man? Were you man enough? Uh, I, I think, uh, yeah, I would say so. I think I would say every man has that struggle you know um i still remember you know memories memories probably started about five years of age for me and you know growing up in in, in tonga on this little island i can remember i just preferred to hang out with girls for some reason and um you know my older cousins would make fun of me and and there's that word you know you know I, I just look back now and i said man i was years ahead of you guys i was i was already talking to the girls at the age of seven <laughs> Just kidding. That's where Leo gets it from too. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'll tell you stories about his dad. 
Uh, may you rest in peace, my my great uncle Nuu. Uh, yeah, he taught he taught us a lot of things in that garage. Poker uh, was one of them. How to talk to girls there. Yeah. But anyway, that's for another another story. Um, but yeah, Leo will get that. And uh, being Tongan, you you know, boys are supposed to be a certain way, and girls a certain way. You know what I mean? Um, you know, we were just meant to be tough and and hard, and then. You know, and then fast forward that going to, to New Zealand. One thing I, I realized after leaving New Zealand and going to Hong Kong and then coming back every time I came back to New Zealand was that word staunch. People are staunch, you know. People, you start talking to someone, they're like, oh, what's it to you? You're like, <laughs> okay, see you later, mate. Have a good one. You know, you got the Maori and the Samoans and the Tongans and Tokelauans and the Fijians. And they all mix up. It was just, and, and maybe it could be because the game of rugby was so big in New Zealand that being staunch was the male thing to do. Crying is not the thing to do. It's seen as weak. And that's probably why rugby and rugby league is so big in New Zealand because, you know, as they say, you know, soccer is a 90 minutes of running around making it out that you're hurt, whereas rugby is 80 minutes of running around making it out that you're not hurt. And I still remember playing top-level rugby league and, and these Māori boys. There was one guy, Jody Looker, he was awesome. New Zealand Māori, I'd see him get smashed. You could hear something wasn't right. But he'll get up and just look at the opposition and just keep going. I'm like, man, that guy, it, just staunch. And and the Māori were, you know, those those huckers are real. <laughs> you know, growing up and seeing that, I was like, how come, you know, I'm not the biggest guy. You know, I'm not the, the best rugby player. I'm not the scariest looking fella either. You know, a lot of people, you know, are, are you sure you're Tongan? Because Tongans are normally bigger. <laughs> it was like, you know, and so, you know, you do, you start comments and, and what people say, even though you're trying to put up that hard exterior, they get through. They get through. And, you, you know, when you hear something over and over and over, you can start believing that. And we do know that our actions can kind of be led back to what our thoughts are. And our thoughts come from what we believe. What is it that we believe? So, you know, going back to masculinity, it was like, yeah, it was got to be the good rugby player. You got to be tough. You got to be respected. And that's probably probably one of the reasons why I first went and started lifting weights. If you if you look at it, I never thought of it that way. You know, I'm in fitness centers now, but you know, the 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 first chance to lift weights was so we could get a little bit of muscle, get get a little bit of respect. You know, and I think sitting here at the age of 50, you get to a certain age where you have a bit of time to, to sit back and reflect, you know, because a lot of people say, hey, look, with the more experiences you have, the more you learn. You know, I heard another take on that. It's, it's not the experience that you learn from. It's actually reflecting on the experience that you learn more from. So I sit back here and, and, and look back and, you know, um, I'm glad to say that I'm, I don't think that I have to be a certain way to be masculine, being a dad as important, being a good husband as important. You know, I think all those maybe stereotypical attributes that, you know, back in the day that I thought, oh, you need to have this or you need to do this. And I just believe now you just got to be a, a good person. And the people around you are the ones that need that. And, you know, we're shaped by all the things that happen around us, good and bad. And I look at what you guys are doing. I just think Polynesians, Pacific Islanders, and even then minorities need role models in their communities that go, hey, it's okay to, to wear this, or it's okay to do that. It's okay to cry. It's okay to be vulnerable. And so that 
they can go, I can, I can respect that. I can relate to that versus going, here it is. This is, these are all the things you have to do. Like, hmm. yeah. I guess that's a big message for us, our brand naked you it's, it's about yeah. taking off those masks and removing that armor that we sometimes wear to shield our vulnerabilities. Oh, yeah. um, if we look at the, the mental health side of things and, Oh, yeah. and suicide rates in New Zealand and even amongst our Polynesian community I, I don't know if there's some conflict with how we're told we need to be I know there's a lot of value in the in our Tongan culture and our Tongan traditions that yep. that get passed on mm. but I also think there might be some things that might be challenging for young people in our times to take yep. on board and do you think there's also elements of our Tongan culture that are challenging for for our young people to embrace in these times yeah yeah absolutely um and you know as uh as the years go by as the decades go by we're living in a ever-changing world look at look at what we're having to deal with now you probably know by my by the background in my uh, mate matonga uh jersey that i'm a proud tongan there's a lot of stuff that i look back now and i'm just going i'm so glad that i was brought up the way i was um because i think identity is a is a big thing identity is a big thing and you know, I remember going to uh, India for a wedding about six years ago for a good friend. And I'd never been to India. So I was just like, you know, heard a lot about it, got there. And what I heard, there's a lot of people that go there to, to be enlightened, to find themselves. And I was like, okay. When I got there and, and, and you're getting down to the Ganges River and seeing what they were doing. And I think there was a, a special celebration of the godson. I can't remember what it was. But then I realized... A lot of people who are lost in this world go there because there's so much, you know, that the Indians do that they know their identity. They know who they are, you know, through all their rituals and, and their beliefs and their gods and so forth. But from what I've seen, there's a lot of lost people out there. There's a lot of lost people out there. And I can speak well of my experience going back to my childhood. You know, I wasn't sat down at the age of seven and said, okay, this is what's going to happen. We're going to this place called Wellington. The temperature is this. And these people speak a different language. It was just like in the back of a, a, a truck, driven to the airport, chucked in this thing that looked like a truck. And I thought I was going up the biggest hill ever. Because I was like, this thing is still going up. And then I get out on the other side at Auckland Airport, get in the back of a car and they drive me. And I remember waking up, going outside and going, we've moved to a fridge. It's freezing. It's like, what's going on? You're kind of uprooted and then chucked into another place where you're just not ready for. And I still remember tasting potatoes for the first time. I'm like, how can you eat this poison? Where's the, where's the kumala and where's the talo? You know, <laughs> I was like, what is going on in this world? So, you know, this is back in the um, 70s, you know, 77, 78, when we arrived there. So you could imagine what it is in the world today where you've got Tongans who are, you know, brought over or born here, I think. You know, Australia was probably the first time I encountered this was in New Zealand, you grow up and people go, where are you from? And they'll just say, oh, I'm Tongan, I'm Samoan. Or in Australia, I've asked people and they're like, I'm Australian. But they ethnically, you're looking at them, they're like, no, you, <laughs> you look kind of Asian, yeah. but they're adamant, I'm Australian. And they get kind of upset. And then I realized, I learned quickly that they don't like being different. I'm from here. This is me. Whereas I've always said to people, I'm Tongan and, you know, I've connected with being Tongan. And I think in the younger generation, we, as, as older generation of Tongans that we've got to um, 
I think what I struggled with was being taken to New Zealand and then expected to be Tongan. And as you grew into an adult, <laughs> there were other things that they expected you to do, like language, for example, speaking Tongan. If I didn't speak Tongan, you know, people just called you kind of like a, you know, plastic or fake. You're a fake Tongan. And I chose to do that. <laughs> I chose, I just played dumb at university. I remember there were certain Tongan students there from Tonga that I just spoke English all the time. And then years later, um, I see them and I'm speaking Tongan and they're looking at me like, when did you start learning how to speak Tongan? Because <laughs> I said, it's really good. You've been working. I said, yeah, since I was born. But you never spoke in, you know, Tongan and at Massey. I went, yeah, I chose to. And that took me back to being taken to New Zealand and you know there was a certain age group between seven and obviously 20 years and in New Zealand but you know my young teens I didn't speak the language I didn't want to um, associate being Tongan because I just wanted to fit in as humans do they want to be part of something so you know um, it was almost like I didn't want to be different looking back at that now and what I do know now is that mate celebrate those differences that's you know, that's what makes you, that's your identity. And it's like family, my family, you don't choose your family and it wasn't by mistake. They're your family for a reason. And so going back to what I, I know now and what I'm doing now, and I believe everyone is designed for greatness and who you are, where you've come from, all the experiences that you've had are there for you to ensure that greatness is the result in what you do. So I look back at that and I'm going, yep, if I struggled with my identity, if I struggled in trying to fit in, then do you reckon there were other Tongan kids or other island youth that struggled? 100%. Absolutely. I was just lucky that I got through and things happened to me that ultimately put me where I am today. Yeah. Did you ever feel like... Uh... Just correct me if I'm wrong here. Did you ever feel like it ever come across as like being Siolalo to other Tongans, you know, like on, on yeah. your success or, or thinking different, like where this yeah. guy is, like looking down? Like, <laughs> yeah. Did you ever yeah. feel like with family or friends or anything like that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And and here's the thing, you, you can't control what other people think or feel, in all honesty, and they will choose what they believe. Getting to New Zealand, we were, you know, educated, success was there, you know. And so sometimes just having that success will get people to go, oh, who do they think they are? Mm. Yeah. And I don't know if it's, a, it's just a Tongan thing. In New Zealand, what I, what I do know, there's this thing called tall poppy syndrome. You guys may have heard tall poppy syndrome. It's almost like, you know, when they got to chop it down, bring it down. And there's a bit of that in New Zealand. And I didn't realize that until I had gone to Hong Kong for 10 years and gone back and gone, I've changed. I've had people say, yes, you have changed. And I look at them, I'm like, yes, I've, I've lived a different life for 10 years. And I loved it. I just, you know, Hong Kong was just, I guess we'll, we'll go on to that later on. But that was a game changer for me. That was like eyes wide open and just getting amongst it. But, you know, going back to what you're saying about Siolalo and, and you know, and normally it's other family members, yeah. you know what I mean? And, and that's a hard thing to to take um i've had people you know fear palangi um you know all this kind of stuff and for me it's like i was taken as a child at seven years of age and i was taken to another country and that's how i was raised yeah 
speaking English, I have to. And speaking Tongan, I, I will do it out of respect. And I will apologize if I, you know, use the wrong word. But all I can say is that siolalo and fiapalangi um, and all that kind of stuff, I've just got to, it kind of has to be a, you know, water off a duck's back. You can't control what they say. And I just, I just pray for them. <laughs> that dude. Yeah, nice. Yeah. Yeah, interesting that. And I guess if you did listen to those people, maybe you don't end up where you are today. Oh, it's, you know, um, that's just one thing, you know what I mean? Dealing with that, you know, what I know now at the age of 50, you know, your attitude is a great thing. And the great thing with attitude is you you can choose your attitude. You can choose to have a bad attitude. You can choose to have a, a good attitude or great attitude. And there's that saying, you know, I love my sayings because it's normally it normally comes from really smart people. You know, so I can kind of just, you know, connect with them. But there's that saying, and I don't know who it, where it came from, but, you know, life's 10% what happens to you and 90% how you react to it. And, you know, I still remember when I got to Hong Kong, you know, I had a lot of time and I was traveling a lot on a ferry to get to rugby practice. And, you know, iPods weren't out at, at that time and music and all that kind of stuff. So I picked up the Long Walk to Freedom, Nelson Mandela's book. And there's a you know, lot to read, but, you know, when you see what Nelson Mandela had to go through in the, what, 18 years in prison, or was it longer? Um, and the way he chose to behave in prison and how to respect the prison wardens and how he changed their view of what Black Africans were like, that's huge, you know what I mean? So again, if Nelson Mandela can do that in his situation, what can we do in a, in a Pacific Island kind of situation when someone can say something hurtful or to, to bring you down? I, I yeah. like the, the smile and I say, God bless you. A hundred percent. Let's just fast forward a little bit to Hong Kong. Obviously, mm. different culture over there. You said that, you know, that was a blessing for you to go over there. And I guess you get you sort of get to be who you choose to be without the yeah. external expectation as well. It's a new thing. But yeah. how do you end up over there? And what were some of the key lessons you learned there? Oh, wow. I, um, should I tell the truth or the Hollywood version? <laughs> Funnily enough, I was uh, I got over to Singapore. They have a sevens tournament there, uh, Singapore Cricket Club. So I think it's the most expensive rugby field on the world because you know land in Singapore is very expensive. So we got there and um, our club from Wellington, we had a pretty you know not a bad team. There was you know guys like Tana Umanga who became All Black captain, and his brother Mike, um, the Leslie brothers, you know who I grew up with in Wellington, and their dad was the All Black captain in the in the early to mid 70s so we get there and, and anyway we're playing and I bump into this guy who I thought was Greek or Italian he just had that George Michael look about him you know beard and the old I couldn't figure out how he could play rugby and his hair looked like George Michael's you know so anyway I bumped into him and I said hey you, you know play pretty good are you Greek or Italian he looked at me he goes I'll give you effing Greek come here I'm Tongan and I'm like holy moly <laughs> his name was uh, Izzy Izzy Tuivai, and uh, he played uh, for the Tongan team and played sevens, and he got over there to the Hong Kong sevens, and uh, he just he stayed, he just stayed in Hong Kong, and he did very well. So I bumped into him, and then he he gave me his business card. Uh, I went back to Wellington, you know, still focused on trying to break into the uh, Wellington rugby team or, or something, because I'd gone back from rugby league after playing rugby league for Wellington to to Union. 
as because uh, uh, my brother Nokia was like, you got to come back, you know, give it a go, give it a shot. And after two years, I didn't even get a trial for the for the Wellington B team. I was like, what is going on here? You know, it, it is New Zealand. As soon as you play rugby league, you kind of, you know, you got a bit of a black mark on your name. Um, so I realized that and I, I rang Izzy from uh, Wellington, Izzy Tuivai, and uh, asked him what was going on in Hong Kong. And he was playing rugby, but he had started working in a gym and he was like, okay, cool. Um, and this is where the non-Hollywood part of it, my, my girlfriend, who's my wife at the time, at this time, uh, she had just finished her master's degree and she had, uh, she got a job in Hong Kong with um, then Ansett Airlines. Uh, in Air New Zealand, they were together, and uh, she was like, "Yep, I'm out of here." I was uh, I was back in Wellington, still playing rugby, and you know my definition of success, you know, degree, good job, car, house, and I was like, "Yeah, no, I'll stay here." I I lasted about yeah, uh, I think four weeks, <laughs> and I was on a plane <laughs> over to um, to Hong Kong, and I. Didn't know what to expect, uh, but all I knew, my wife Selena, uh, just loved it. She just loved the energy, and uh, she and she her sister was already over there working for a trust company, so you know she had someone there to go to. And so I was on the plane in about two weeks. You know, within two weeks, I resigned from my position. I had sold the car, I had rented out the house, and uh, I was ready to go. And I still remember flying into to Hong Kong, and that was the old Kai Tak Airport. I don't know if you guys have heard about it. It's like in the middle of Hong Kong, just off. And you could actually, as you're flying in, you could look into the apartments and see what they were watching on TV. That's how close this plane got. In. And the pilots used to, you know, brag on about it, how awesome it was. You could see what was on their washing lines, you know, coming out of the, that's how crazy it was. So I flew in and I was like, Jeepers, this is like, I was just looking for the bat signal, you know. I was looking for bat, I was looking out for Batman. That's how crazy Hong Kong was. Um, and that was 1997, so it had just just after the handover back to China from you know, uh, from the British. And I land, get out, you know, uh, Selena's her sister, we get on a, on a taxi, and I'm just blown away because it's just 100 mile an hour, even the escalators are going faster than than normal you're just like people are just you know all over the place um but that was my introduction to to hong kong get there and uh go and play rugby you know which is something that you're used to uh just not used to the heat i'm sure uh, sam would have felt the old uh heat over there in japan as well and uh some of the games in hong kong it's half a uh, toughest conditions to play in one o'clock in the afternoon there oh was- it's yeah I mean, I didn't have much weight to lose. You know, I was back then I was still only about 90, 93 kilos. So I lost five kilos, I think, in two weeks. And so, you know, um, getting into Hong Kong, it was just that, you know, you could imagine a, a freshie from Wellington walking around Hong Kong. Um, I still remember walking around with my rugby shorts and my little rugby singlet with my backpack and uh, walking in the middle of central Hong Kong. And these people were walking around with three-piece suits. I didn't know what they were at that time, but you know, the, the, the 30, 40, $50,000 watches and the, you know, the diamonds and the, you know, all the Louis Vuitton and Gucci are just like, and they're, you know, they're kind of looking at me cause I'm, you know, six, three and they're not the tallest people. And they're like, the hell is this guy? 
You know what I mean? I think they would have been used to the sevens uh, being there every year. But I just, I just felt like, I just felt the energy. I was like, how good is this? And playing rugby, you know, at a decent level, you know, I don't think I bought a drink back then when I used to drink alcohol. I, I didn't buy a drink for like three months because everybody just wanted to buy you a beer. You know what I mean? And just that energy. And I think the expat community is small there, but they're very close. Um, so, and, and rugby's at the center of it. You've got the Kiwis, the Aussies, the South Africans, the English, the Scottish, the Welsh, and they're all there for the love of rugby. And so there's five clubs and you get on the field and you bash each other. And then you go out on, uh, on the town with each other and your best mates, you know? So the, you know, Hong Kong was nothing but a, an amazing experience for me. I saw a lot, um, in the rugby circles, you know, lifelong friends, um, and obviously got into the, uh, to the fitness industry, which took me a whole nother, uh, <laughs> another avenue, whole nother line, which, you know, every now and then I just got to pinch myself and go, did that really happen? Is that really what happened to you? And I'm like, yeah, Hong Kong is just one of those places where there's not that much red tape, if you know what I mean. If you want to go and do something, just go do it. Whereas somewhere like Australia is very regulated, which is there for a reason. But Hong Kong, if you want to make it happen, it's a lot easier. Just go and get it done. Thank you for joining us for part one of this episode. If you liked that episode, please leave us a review and stay connected on our socials, both on Facebook and Instagram at Naked Your Apparel. You can also find out more about us at www.nkdu.com.au. In part two, we dive into Luciano's time in Hong Kong, his rise in the fitness industry, and how he and his partner crossed paths with the likes of Dana White, Madonna, and even Jackie Chan. If you want to learn more about business, leadership and developing culture within your organization be sure to tune in for this one stay safe and we'll see you on the next episode